Welcome everyone to episode 114, Stem Cell Pioneer. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thank you so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Dalen? Kiki, you're not going to believe me, but I'm on vacation again. I apologize. <laughs> What's up? You're like, I like spring break. I'm going to do spring yeah, break again know, and again. It never ends. Well, <laughs> if you don't know, they do like multiple breaks for the kids these That's days. Amazing. I didn't know. When I was a kid, I feel like all we had was the summer. But because I'm such a great parent, I got my kid in Costa Rica now. I got to say, if you got young kids, they would love it. Monkeys everywhere, crabs, all the things that kids love and that creep out my wife are <laughs> in play. So it's like Do toucans creep out your wife. Well. Oh, toucans, so bizarre. We gotta have a whole show about why toucans nose is that big. <laughs> I'm sure there's a short answer there, but hey, maybe it deserves a discussion. Anyway, I'm good, Keeks. I'm good. Mm-hmm. I'm on vacation and I'm talking to you. Could it be better? No, it can't be better. Can't get better than this. Everyone, I hope you are enjoying it so far because we have a wonderful show ahead for you. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you'll also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And of course, you can subscribe if you have not already on iTunes and Stitcher so the new episodes will download automatically to your mobile device. Okay, today, in addition to our roundup of the latest science and stem cell news, we are going to be talking with stem cell pioneer Dr. Janet Rosant about her impactful work in the stem cell field studying embryo development and cell fate, and how applicable what we learn from mouse embryos is to the treatment of human disease. There are some good questions we've got to ask ahead, and I hope that you will enjoy that interview. But first... What's going on? Dalen, what are we doing? Well, Keith, we got to do a couple things first. First, I mean, I got to say, I, I can't wait to talk to uh, Dr. Rassan. She's an icon in the field. You could argue that she invented the whole thing with the stem cells, what we're talking about every couple weeks. But before we get into that, you know, every week we use this time to remind our listeners of Stem Cells Connects on Science Newsletters. Fun fact, you didn't know, these newsletters started with Dr. Alan Eves, stem cells president and CEO, founder compiling the first Connexon newsletter, Cell Therapy News, himself, and sending it to his colleagues 16 years ago. Since then, there have been almost 1,000 issues of Cell Therapy News published, and there are now 20 weekly Connexon newsletters with almost 70,000 subscriptions globally. That's like every scientist in the world, pretty much, so get on board. You can subscribe to Cell Therapy News, the original Connexon Science Newsletter, as well as any of the other 19 weekly newsletters at www.stemcellnewsletters.com. All right, Kiki, with that done, I'm ready to get into the roundup. Start with some general science, if you will. Absolutely. So last week you brought up an autologous IPSC-based cancer vaccine, and a co-author of that paper has come out with another cancer vaccine paper in the past week, oncologist Ronald Levy from Stanford University School of Medicine and his team has developed a potential cancer vaccine treatment that uses a couple of agents to boost the body's immune system. So similar again to that IPSC-based vaccine, but they're using the body's immune system to fight cancer. And they have a human clinical trial underway currently in lymphoma patients. So what this vaccine does is it You inject the vaccine directly into tumors in the mice. And so it has to be, it's not a prophylactic vaccine like you, you know, get a flu vaccine to prevent you getting the flu. This instead is a quote unquote vaccine. It really triggers antibody production. And so researchers give the first injection of vaccine to mice that already had tumors, injecting directly into one of the affected sites. Levy says, our approach uses a one-time application of very small amounts of these two agents to stimulate the immune cells only within the tumor itself. In the mice, we saw amazing body-wide effects, including the elimination of tumors all over the animal. So this vaccine uses an aspect of the immune system, which the T cells 
can move around the body to attack abnormal cells that they recognize because of abnormal proteins that are on the surface, these antibody type proteins. And so by using the first agent, which is a short piece of DNA called CPG oligonucleotide, it amplifies the expression of an activating receptor on T cells that's called OX40. And this is a part of the tumor necrosis factor receptor superfamily. And then the second agent is an antibody that actually binds to OX40. And this activates the T cells to fight tumorous cancer cells. They are injected in really small amounts right into the tumor and they only activate cells in the tumor itself. But then these T cells can go around and recognize similar tumors and get rid of them as well and attack them also. And so the researchers implanted cancer, lymphoma, in mice in two places, very disparate places on the mouse body, injected the vaccine into one of the tumors and then saw that both tumors were cured. Of 90 mice with lymphoma, 87 were completely cured. Only three had a recurrence of the lymphoma, but that cleared up after a second go round of the vaccine. So it's a super high efficiency in these mice. They didn't see any negative effects. The big problem here, though, is it's very specific to tumor type. And so this could be wonderful for catching metastases of cancer, but it would be limited in terms of if somebody has multiple types of cancer occurring in their body, it wouldn't be able to be one vaccine to treat them all. But this is published in Science Translational Medicine. Pretty exciting news. Human trial currently underway. Very exciting. I think it was uh, just a couple weeks ago, our last show, we talked about this MSC trial, the mesenchymal stem cell trial for immunomodulation. And we were like, wow, 100% success. That seems like, you know, unequivocal. We got to go with this. This is another case of that. Immunotherapy, a lot of people have been touting it. Some may be skeptics, but I think this is kind of pushing it over the hump. Combined with Joe Wu's results last show with the tumor vaccine, which is obviously more experimental and basic early stage, this is something about to go into human trials, and it's like a home run in mice. Yeah. You know, we've seen it before with curing mice of cancer, but this seems real to me. I'm very excited, although obviously, as you said, there's some, some limitations, but pretty exciting stuff, Kiki. Yeah, I can't wait to hear the results of the lymphoma trial. We'll see where it goes. Have we talked about the stomach cells being found in lung tumors? No. We've talked about it privately because, you know, we talk about that type we of stuff all the time. <laughs> stomach and the tumor. Everybody knows. Yeah, but this is a, a really interesting study out of the March 26th issue of Developmental Cell that shows how tumors grow in different areas of the body and that how transcriptional control plays a role in it. And this kind of ties in nicely with the research focus of our interviewee today, Janet Rosant, who works on transcriptional control as well. But here in this study that was published, researchers showed that the lack or upregulation or downregulation of transcriptional factors can lead cells in one organ, like the lung, like the epithelial, the airway epithelium, can take on identities of cells from neighboring organs. So if the instructions aren't there to say you become a lung cell and excrete mucosal factors that are particular to the lung, other instructions may be circulating from nearby organs like the stomach that cause cells in the lung to become stomach cells and actually excreting stomach acids. <laughs> so acting like stomach cells in the lung. And these researchers found that really the loss or gain of this transcription factor program that governs embryonic cell fate specification is associated with a form of tumor plasticity characterized by this acquisition of alternative cell fates normally characteristic of adjacent organs. Yeah, that's pretty cool though, right? It's one organ. I mean, the lung and the stomach, I would never have thought of them in the same league. Dr. Rasan will tell us later that I'm a fool because they're both derived from the endoderm, but exactly. that notwithstanding, it's pretty cool that just one little switch or two little switches can have such a dramatic impact in morphogenesis or all the other things that go on to make a stomach versus a lung. Pretty cool. We talked about having, what's his name, the senior author on this? We talked about having him on the show. Please come talk to yes. us. Come this is such cool science. 
I'd love to get this team, someone from this team. Duke, my boys at Duke. Yeah, get them. My boys and girls at Duke. Interview. And then finally, this is something as a physiologist I find really interesting is based on new ways of looking at the space between cells, at cells, researchers have come to see the spaces between cells in a new light, the interstitium, the interstitial spaces. Normally it's just space, right? If fluid flows through it, you have problems with edema and swelling as a result of fluid getting stuck in the interstitial spaces. But other than that, people haven't really thought of it as an influential part of our physiology. But a recent paper, March 22nd in Scientific Reports, researchers used a new in vivo microscopy technique to present evidence that the human interstitium is more like a matrix of collagen bundles interspersed with fluid than the densely packed stacks of connective tissue that it has always appeared to be in fixed slides. And the researchers saw something when they were using a technique called probe-based confocal laser endomicroscopy, and they were assessing patients' bile ducts for cancer spread. The endoscopic method allowed for exploration of living tissues within the body rather than needing to wait for fixed slides. And this methodology brought the tissue to light in a different way. And haha, brought it to light, microscopy, blah, blah. Noticed that the researchers <laughs> noticed that the bile duct tissue appeared as a net-like pattern. And it was an anatomical pattern that no one had ever described before for this tissue. And so they examined live and freshly frozen bile ducts from 13 patients, determining that the lattice is actually composed of collagen bundles with, that support the fluid-filled spaces. And they are lined irregularly with flattened cell types that produce a couple of different markers, one endothelial and one mesenchymal. The researchers saw this net-like interstitium in other areas of body, including the skin, digestive tract, and the bladder. Histological examinations of colon, stomach, and skin cancers that had metastasized seemingly directly from the interstitial space to the lymph nodes suggested that this interstitium might drain into the lymphatic system and that this connection might explain how some tumors metastasize once, once they reach the interstitial space. Hmm. So the researchers are saying maybe this we should call the interstitium an organ of its own right, but physiologists everywhere are questioning that reclassification. Who knows whether the interstitium should be actually called an organ, like the skin or the heart or the bladder, whatever, but it definitely bears some more investigation to see how it influences aspects of physiology and metabolism. Yeah, that's for sure. I think you think because something is ubiquitous and has like a generalized function across multiple organ systems, that it's not itself an organ. And, uh, you know, people have made that mistake with a lot of organ systems. So we're Finally, you know, recognizing, giving props to the interstitial, the third space. Get yours. Get yours here. Third space, three stories. I am done with my part of the roundup. Dalen, what do you have? All right. Well, I'm going to tell you about another underappreciated organ system, and that's endothelium, near and dear to my heart. I've studied it for some time. This is not really exactly about endothelium, maybe a bit peripheral. It's really about brain organoids, you know. These neural spheres or organoids that people generate from embryonic stem cells have been a remarkable tool because, you know, just a few years ago, the first examples of these were generated. And in the intervening years, very rapidly, the science has developed making more complex organoids that recapitulate a lot of brain structures. It's an amazing tool for discovery. And I think the, the real innovation and what's moving it forward is that there's an emphasis being placed on making these organoids more like the native brain. And if it's more like the native brain, then it'll recapitulate all the molecular aspects that are going on in our brains, presumably, or at least closer to those. So this was the logic behind a, a study by Ben Waldo at uh, UC Davis. The My idea was, you know, water. in vivo. Oh, there you go. That's Big right. up. You see Davis. Big up. They got good people there, Kiki. You among them. They do. And uh, Ben Waldo, his group there, what they did is they're trying to figure out how to 
vascularize the brain. You know, like a lot of groups trying to make vascularized organoids because presumably, you know, the brain in vivo, it's got vessels, right? Although people, like you were talking about the interstitium, people haven't appreciated endothelium as an organ system. But indeed, in the brain in particular, the structure of the, the, the endothelium, you know, blood-brain barrier, it's very important. So vascularized organoids are highly sought after as an organ system. A lot of groups working toward this. And last week, Ben Wilder, UC Davis, they published the first results of these vascularized human neural organoids. So the process, and this is a clinical from clinical patient material, they took a patient of theirs during routine surgery. They recovered some cellular material, brain membrane cells, in fact, from a neurosurgery, and they made those cells into IPS cells. And then they generated some brain organoids, our neural cells, through differentiation and separately generated endothelial cells, like, you know, roughly a quarter million, I think it was, and, and combined these two cellular populations in a 3D structure and were able to make these vascularized organoids that they then implanted into mice and let them grow for many other weeks. And ultimately, when they recovered, the mice showed that these organoids, the neural material, had human blood vessels within it and seemed to be functional. I think what's really inspiring here, I love it when clinicians do science because it's about how they come to their thought process. And, you know, as a clinician, Ben Waldo, seeing a lot of patients, he got the idea from treating a rare disorder called Moya Moya disease. Patients afflicted with the disease, they have blocked arteries at the base of their brain. It keeps blood from reaching the rest of the organ. And uh, to quote Dr. Waldo, we sometimes lay a patient's own artery on top of the brain to get the blood vessels to start growing in. When we replicate that process on a miniaturized scale, we saw these vessels self-assemble, okay, end quote. And that's to say that the ECs, these self-assembling endothelial cells that they generated from the IPS population, were able to ingress, to grow into the neural cells and form complexes with them and in a functional organoid in vivo that was live and perfused with blood, presumably, to survive that long. One caveat here is that they didn't show exactly that the blood vessels were functional because they had to flush all the blood out of the mice. They do a live perfusion where they stick a needle in the heart and pump all the blood out of the mouse so they get some nice clean imaging. So they weren't able to see if there were actual blood vessels in there. My advice in future studies, I'm sure they're already on this. I mean, they don't need me to tell them anything. But you could do some in vivo intravital labeling, like a lectin or something, and then flush and see if the, the vessels are hooked up with the vasculature, so to speak. So I think this is a really important first step showing that the cell types can combine. It has its limitations, but these are the first guys out there doing it. So it's very impressive. And uh, I think that, you know, if nothing else, this is going to be a really valuable tool for in vitro study of the relationship between endothelial cells and neural cells in these neural sphere organoid type things. So we're getting there with these organoids, Kiki. It's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. It won't be long before we can, you know, grow me some, you know, backup brain because I'm having some trouble here in Costa Rica. <laughs> Vida, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, that's right. So much trouble. Too much vacation. But I, yeah, with this, I find it the limitation to extent that these organoids can grow is size. How, what is the volume? How many cells can you have before they can't get nutrients from outside anymore? Because even if they're bathed, how far can nutrients just get into the cellular structure? And vessels are essential to allowing more cells and greater volume to grow. I mean, but this is something that in developing all sorts of tissues, replacement tissue for heart muscle, for transplants, for growing, you know, synthetic livers, we need this kind of blood vessel growth to enable this. And so, I mean, come on, is it as easy as just laying a blood vessel on top of it and just letting it grow in? I think it's a little more complicated, but I think this is a big step. Yes, it is exactly right. I mean, I didn't touch on, as you said, all the idea of the whole impetus behind regenerative medicine. Can yeah. we make organs, right? Can well, we, make organs? we need the vessels. Yep. We need the vessels for the function. And you're right about that. This is the first in many steps towards getting <laughs> first, macro. First mini brains, then with the blood vessels, they'll just be brains. <laughs> macro brains, super brains, <laughs> That's right. pinky in the brain. Well, I'll tell you, there's the brain. That's probably far from therapeutic intervention with cells because the brain is a great mystery. 
There's a more simple approach, the one that's like kind of on the horizon we're talking about, and this was a major step forward along that clinical track by Pete Coffey's group forever. They've been trying to address age-related macular degeneration using transplant of retinal pigmented epithelium, okay? And this is the first, I would say, a landmark, because this is the first real long-term analysis showing functional improvement in patients, okay? So what they did with these patients, and the other thing I should say, and this is inspiring to me, is this is a conglomeration of multiple leaps in understanding that we've covered on the show. Tracks that people were on to try and get this into therapy, and then they did something and found out that it didn't work that way. They had to do it this way. And then Pete Coffey has soaked up all these insights, and he's made the system work in a landmark study. And I'm going to elaborate on those limitations that I just kind of alluded to there. So first, what they use is human embryonic stem cell. This isn't IPS cell-based. This is HESC-based study because I think a big part of the last, the, the, our growing pains here with IPS cell-based therapy is that the amount of quality control you have to do when you make a new product out of every patient is almost insurmountable. And I think the lesson from the Japanese group was that maybe we had to use an ESL bank, okay? And that's what they've done here. They've used a, a well-defined ES cell line that has been in play for a long while um, and has been well-described, GMP grade, everything ready to go clinically, but allogeneic. And that leads to the second thing, which is that there was the idea that the eye is the best site for engraftment because of the immune privilege. There's not an active immune surveillance there, and so you can get allogeneic grafts there without immune rejection. And we covered on this show a studies, a couple of studies in the past that showed that, you know what, although we talk about that, with, you know, using immunosuppression vastly improves the engraftment of the mm -hmm. RP in, in this case. So Pete Coffey has learned from both of these and other, of course, as well as his own, to put together in two patients where they used ES cells, they generated an actual sheet of RPE, a patch. They created a unique surgical apparatus for delivering that into the subretinal space of one eye of patients. And this is kind of alluding to remember those other studies we saw where they were taking mesenchymal stem cells, injecting them into both eyes of these poor old people who ended up going blind. So of course, they're doing a careful study here, one eye. And what they were scoring for over the course of 12 months was improved, best corrected visual acuity. And what they showed is that they had an improvement gain of 29 and 21 letters. So the idea there is that they're able to see these more letters than they were before. And also they can read a sequence of words. And the improvement was significant in both these patients. And the methodology was long-term immunosuppression, but that they then went on to show that they had very robust engraftment and retention of the graft, the patch in there, and that was integrated. And ultimately they really, I think, very convincingly proved the feasibility and the safety of this patch idea using an allogeneic graft of ES cell derived retinal pigmented epithelium as a regenerative strategy for AMD home run, Peter Coffey. I think this is a study that at the end of this year, if this doesn't get a big round of applause, then I don't know what it's gonna take. I'll give it a big round of applause right now. <laughs> there we go. Sorry, that was more of a golf there clap. <laughs> yeah, come on. Get into it. I know it's, you know, the Masters is on this uh, is... Uh, right now, isn't it, Kiki? You got to forget golf. I don't golf. know these things. What? Golf? Who? Well, come on. Kiki. I know I saw something about Tiger Woods doing something somewhere, but that's yes. not what's important to me right now. It's this retinitis pigmentosa getting getting treatments, getting treatments that might actually work that are going to help people. And uh, this kind of it's research working. is what's going to move it forward so that people actually will get, you know, treatments that work and th that can be moved into stem cell clinics as opposed to the weird treatments that blind people. We don't want any more of that. Oh, no. Yes. I want stuff that actually works. And this is that direction. Yeah. It works. It works. Yeah. And I trust this guy. I mean, they're very careful. I'm very impressed. Let me just ask you as an aside, please forgive me, everybody. But are you rooting for Tiger? When this show airs, he will have one or not one. Would you root for him? Are you rooting for Tiger? I'm rooting for Tiger. I'm rooting for Tiger. Of course I'm rooting, I'm rooting for, for Tiger. 
I mean, it's, I'm rooting for Tuck. You know, he, he was made on some top. He made some mistakes, but this is like the good kind of. You know, you're you're making good on on things again. You know, I it's a, it's, story. It's a story. Yeah, the down and out, the comeback story. I mean, this is a human story, and so I'm rooting for Tiger. Yes. It's a human story. And his back. I mean, I got back issues, Kiki, so I'm feeling it. Although I'm never coming back to anything. Okay, don't count on me for a comeback. Will you I'm come coming. back to work eventually? <laughs> <laughs> yes, remains to be seen. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Well, talking about comebacks, you know, we talked about only peripherally. I don't know if it was the last show or a couple shows ago. We talked about this study that we didn't, I don't know if we really covered it, but it was this idea that, like, there's a brief window during which you have neurogenesis in the hippocampus. It's like the first six months of life. Yeah. And then that's it. You're static. I was kind of like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like you have this window when you're newborn, but I was disappointed. And I'll tell you now, I'm very pleased to report a short article in Cell Stem Cell that kind of reports the reverse title. Human hippocampal neurogenesis persists throughout aging okay so the hippocampus it's this you know mostly recognized as the seat of long-term memory so it's important when you get to our age kiki <laughs> very and you know the idea was that humans are thought to exhibit waning neurogenesis and there's this other story the exercise induced angiogenesis with the sirtuins and the color restriction all that stuff we covered the last show but all that wanes as you get older and there's a resulting decrease in your the hippocampus of, you know, neurons and neurogenesis, but it hadn't been well studied or comprehensively studied, even though this, this story from a few weeks ago kind of made it seem that way. This was autopsies of hippocampus from healthy human individuals from 14 to 79 years of age. And what they found that there were similar numbers of intermediate neural progenitors and thousands of immature neurons in the dentate gyrus. This is the hippocampus essentially and comparable numbers of glia and mature granule neurons and equivalent dentate gyrus volume across all these ages. So, you know, there is an effect. Older individuals had less angiogenesis, they had less neuroplasticity, and a smaller quiescent progenitor pool like the reserve. So there is a benefit to being young, of course, but healthy older subjects that didn't have any kind of like pathology or cognitive impairment or any, you know, evidence of neuropsychiatric disease or anything, mm -hmm. they had totally preserved neurogenesis, okay? And this is kind of the idea, I think, coming from this, is that there's neurogenesis sustaining human cognitive function throughout life, and that the declines in cognitive function may not be linked necessarily to the cellular pool there waning, but, you know, some other things like vacation. You know what I'm saying, Kiki? <laughs> vacation and sitting in the sun, it makes you happy. Reduces stress, of course. <laughs> Happiness, not good for your hippocampus. Yeah, no, it, no, vacation is great for your hippocampus. Reduction in stress hormones is probably going to increase your angiogenesis. It's going to be good for your brain. That's true. I think stuff like this is really interesting. You know, it's kind of this back and forth. I mean, when I was in school and long before that, the common knowledge was no new brain cells, right? That was until the mid-90s, early 2000s, and the, the rusty gauge work with mice and rats that started to suggest that, oh my gosh, there's neurogenesis in the mammalian hippocampus. And then they started looking elsewhere and found it in other primates and then did more research and found evidence from nuclear bombs. You know, we've got nuclear radiation in our cells. Oh, look, we've got new brain cells being born. And then other studies came out and said, no, like the one a couple of weeks ago. No, no new brain cells. <laughs> and this one comes out and says, yes, new brain cells. And so I think there are a couple of things that we're looking at here. Number one, limited number of, of subjects. And so, you know, 28 is not a high number and they're aged. Yes, all previously healthy, but across the age spectrum, which is good or possibly bad, because you're not really getting a good older group sample. It's not a big sample. And the other study that said no, it was a, a larger sample, but it was a different methodology. And so I don't know, this is a different methodology still. And so the methodology makes a difference. The sample size makes a difference. And at some point, hopefully all the studies that are done, that more people are going to keep looking into this and we can do a meta review and really put the, all the data together to see if we can get a coherent picture of what's actually happening. Yes. 
I am voting for new new brain cells because that's what yes. I need. <laughs> All the naysayers, no new brain cells. Why not? Give me my new brain cells. Give me my new brain cells. Do it. Oh, dear. Does that do it for the roundup? Do you have any more? That doesn't. No, I'm done. Let's move on. I can't wait. Let's move on. Okay. Well, we have our interview, but before we get to that, I would love to tell you that Stem Cell Technologies is very proud to be providing Dr. Janet Rassant's laboratory with the specialized cell culture and differentiation medium required to maintain and direct human pluripotent stem cells toward the endoderm lineage. The Stem Diff Definitive Endoderm Kit supports highly efficient differentiation of human embryonic stem cells and induced pluripotent stem cells to definitive endoderm cells. Additional protocols can be applied to form terminally differentiated cells of the endoderm lineage, such as lung epithelium. To learn more about Stem Cells DE, Definitive Endoderm Kit, visit www.stemcell.com endoderm. That's stemcell.com slash endoderm. Our guest today is scientific pioneer, Dr. Janet Rossant. Dr. Janet Rossant is senior scientist in the developmental and stem cell biology program at the Hospital for Sick Children and is a professor in the Department of Molecular Genetics and the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Toronto. Her research interests center on understanding the genetic control of normal and abnormal development in the early mouse embryo using both cellular and genetic manipulation techniques. Her interests in the early embryo led to the discovery of the placental trophoblast stem cell. Rossent has been recognized for her contributions to science with many awards and is a fellow of both the Royal Societies of London and Canada and is a foreign associate of the U.S. National Academy of Science. Rossent is actively involved in the international developmental and stem cell biology communities and has contributed to the scientific and ethical discussion of, on public issues related to stem cell research. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rossent. Thank you. It's wonderful to get the opportunity to speak with you. To get started, can you expand a bit on your lab's work and what your focus has been on for so many years? Right, so I began my research even as a graduate student working in mouse embryos and trying to understand the very, very early stages of how an embryo develops from an egg. And the first event that occurs when an egg develops is the cells divide and they form what's called the blastocyst. And in the mouse and in the human embryo, that's the first time that cells have made a decision about the different fates they're going to fall into. And it turns out that the first decision that an embryo makes is to make either trophoblast cells, which make the placenta, or inner cell mass cells, which are actually where pluripotent cells come from. So our work on trying to understand the basic under development of the embryo really underlays a lot of what we now know about pluripotency, because it's in the early embryo that the pluripotent cells are set aside from the trophoblast cells. So over the years, my lab has worked on some of the gene pathways that are involved in making the inner cell mass different from the trophoblast. We've also been involved in deriving, as you said, stem cells, not just from the inner cell mass, the pluripotent stem cells, which most people look at, but we've also been isolating stem cells from the outer cells that make the trophoblast and make the placenta. So we like to sort of go backwards and forwards between stem cells and embryos to really understand the fundamentals of development but also give us some information that can be relevant to stem cell biology and obviously future regenerative medicine. Let's go back to when you were an embryo. Well, maybe not so far back. We know you're a native of the UK and you've been in Canada a long time, but neither of your parents were scientists, Kiki and I were talking about in an article we read about you. How did it come that you got interested in science and later to get interested in stem cells? Can you now give us a little insight there? Yes, you're quite right. I'm the first person in my family ever to go to university, let alone be a research scientist, which is not to say that my parents weren't very supportive, because they were. But really, I got interested in science when I was at high school. And like many people, if you dig back into their history, you'll find that at some point, a high school teacher is extremely important. And I had a very good female 
high school teacher who really encouraged me and many other students in the school to actually look at and pursue a scientific career. She encouraged me to go to university. She encouraged me to go to Oxford and Cambridge, or apply to Oxford and Cambridge, which are the sort of the best universities in the UK, which I did. I went to Oxford, and then I did my PhD at Cambridge. So now I have split allegiances when it comes to the boat race and all these kind of competitions <laughs> between the two universities. But of course, it was a great, a great time. So that's how I got into science. How I got into developmental biology relates to a very famous developmental biologist, also has had major impact on stem cell biology, and that's John Gurdon. John Gurdon was a lecturer in the zoology department when I was an undergraduate in Oxford. Of course, John is the person who first developed cloning, cloned frogs, and really was the first person to show that every cell in our body contains all the information to allow you to reprogram development. So you could take a nucleus, put it back in the egg, and start development again. That was sort of fundamental to the later reprogramming of cells that uh, Shinya Yamanaka did to generate iPS cells. And of course, the two of them together won the Nobel Prize for that reprogramming work. So I didn't know he was going to get the Nobel Prize then, but he was a very inspirational lecturer. And he really, then and now, because he's still active in science, he really inspired me to pursue that fundamental question of how we all got here from a fertilized egg. And what I also liked about John was that he always asked, made the question simple. He didn't try to make it complex. He, he just tore apart the complexity and tried to keep make simple questions. And I guess I've tried to do that as well throughout my career. So that's why I like the blastocyst. It's simple. It's only got three cell types. Of course, we've done a lot of things over the years and we've explored many different aspects of development, but I keep coming back to that because I think that you can learn a lot by taking a simple system with simple sulfate decisions and really dig into understanding how the molecular pathways are involved. So he got me into developmental biology and that, I guess, really sort of started me off, but I didn't like frogs. And he had a room in the zoology department where they kept all the xenopus. And xenopus are nasty, slimy creatures, and they, they sit in big tanks, and you feed them chopped liver, and it's just really... <laughs> uh, I can feel uh, your appreciation of that room. Yeah. And the... <laughs> the research is fantastic, still is fantastic, but I wasn't so sure I wanted to work on xenopus. And at that time, people were just beginning, really, to explore the mouse as an early, as a developmental system. And there's a lot of you know, work on, on mouse genetics was underway, but as a developmental and experimental system, not a lot of work. And uh, at that point, I was introduced to Richard Gardner, who was at, then at Cambridge, who was really working to try to experimentally manipulate early mouse embryos. And he was the first person to inject cells into the blastocyst and make chimeras. So people had made chimeras before by aggregating embryos. But by injecting cells into the blastocyst, it just allowed you to look in more detail and dissect apart the cell fate of different cell types. So he was just starting off as a young lecturer in Cambridge, and I joined as his first graduate student and worked on the mouse embryo and obviously in stem cells and human stem cells since. At the time that I started with Richard Gardner, we were working in what's called the Marshall Lab for Reproductive Physiology. The day I started, Azim Sarani started as a postdoc, same day. Ginny Papayano, another mouse developmental biologist of note, was a post, another postdoc with Richard. Uh, Bob Edwards was working on in vitro fertilization. Matt Kaufman was working on parthenogenesis. It was an incredibly exciting time for the foundations, really, of mouse developmental biology and human developmental biology as we moved into IVF and, and thinking about stem cells. So that was a great time. And then I moved to Canada. <laughs> I met when I was at Cambridge. We were at the same graduate college and he was a, he was a chemist, but we didn't meet through science. We met through rowing. We, everybody in Cambridge, you join a college, rowing is a big thing. That's a sort of social event. We were at Darwin, which was a graduate college. So it was a mixed college, which at the time there weren't a lot of, the undergraduate colleges were mostly not mixed. So they had cups and rowing teams, and I was the cox, because I'm small and light, and my husband was one of the rowing team. That's how we met. So then I came to Canada, and uh, I've been here ever since. It's been a great, 
great place to do science and it's grown immensely over the years. But actually, Canada, of course, is renowned for stem cell research. And I knew that when I came to Canada, actually. So although I was really working on the embryo, I've always had an interest in stem cells. When I was a graduate student with Richard, Richard, Ginny and I actually wrote a review about does the mouse embryo have stem cells? And this is still actually a bit of an argument. We talk about pluripotent stem cells as being derived from the early embryo, and indeed they are. You can take inner cell mass cells and now derive embryonic stem cells, which we didn't know at the time. But we know that in the embryo, there really isn't a sort of pluripotent stem cell per se. The cells rapidly transition through different phases and end up differentiating. So it's not really a prolonged stem cell phase. So we had a we actually had a review about that way back when, guess what would that be, 1977 or something. But at that time, following that up, I started to read about the pioneers of stem cell research and the pioneers of stem cell research defining the sort of stem cell concept and developing assays to really look at stem cells were here in Canada. They were Tillon McCullough here in Toronto and C.P. LeBlanc in Montreal. So Till and McCullough were the people who first described hematopoietic stem cells, developed an assay they could show that a single cell could form these multipotent colonies, and therefore that there were sort of multipotent stem cells within the bone marrow. C.T. LeBron, using different techniques, really showed that the intestine has stem cells, which we know a lot about now, and also within the spermatogenesis, that's also a stem cell system. So they were all working on adult stem cells. They really were defining what we use to define stem cells today. When I came to Canada, they were some of my heroes. So one of the first things I did when I got here was make contact with them and try to, to meet them and you know, sort of make my way into the Canadian scene. And I have to say, Jim Till particularly was very welcoming. The C.P. LeBlanc, who perhaps doesn't get as much acknowledgement for his contributions to the stem cell field as he should, was delightful. He was in the anatomy department in Montreal, and he's a classical anatomist, you know, and everything is done by histology and tritiated thiamidine, but he really interpreted stem cells from classical anatomy and, and labeling studies. But he also was a, a character. He wore every day a purple blazer and a high shirt, came in every day, absolutely like that, until he was 95. Every day he was in the lab working, I don't know if he died in the lab, but he certainly didn't spend very much time out of the lab. He really was uh, all the way working through. And he, was, he really was very, very supportive of me. And that's important. You know, when you start off in a new country, you need to have people who, who help you along the way. You absolutely do. But you got yourself settled in Canada and you became part of a team that you and one of your colleagues now at the University of Toronto, you derived the first mouse embryo from a cell culture. This was a huge, hugely impactful step toward human treatments of disease, the using embryonic stem cells for therapies. And this kind of gave people the view that this possibility was really out there. One cell can be all cells. So when you were doing it, when you were working on this, did you have any conception of how impactful it was going to be that you were going to be cited, what is it, daily, like 10,000 times? <laughs> I, that's my guess. What do you think, Dr. Rosan? I would guess... Oh, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> Definitely. No, yes, I think we did know. I think we did know. I mean, I, I, all the way through, so, you know, my work was the mouse chimeras. We'd shown that uh, epiblast cells within the blastocyst were pluripotent. We made chimeras. We showed that they could make, essentially make the whole mouse. So it was a natural question then to ask, well, if ES cells are really like the epiblast cells, pluripotent cells in the embryo, if we've captured that state, they should be able to make a whole mouse too. And so my colleague, Andras Nagy, who joined us here in Toronto from Hungary, had been doing a number of different experiments, but he had this sort of idea that if we could essentially set up a system whereby we'd force the embryonic stem cells to take over the whole embryo, then maybe we could show that they were like epiblast cells. And that's what we did by aggregating them with tetraploid embryos. These are embryos that have twice the normal amount of DNA, which we do by a genetic trick, fusion, fusing cells together. We knew from the literature that tetraploid embryos are quite good at making placenta and the sort of support structures, but they don't 
not very good at making the, the embryo, the fetus itself. So we figured if we put them together, embryonic stem cells, if they're like the epiblast, should take over. And first of all, we showed that they could. We could make mid-gestation sort of fetuses that were entirely ES-derived. And it took us a little longer to show that we could make live mice because that experiment is a pretty tough experiment. You're asking cells that you've been growing in culture for a long time to still retain this capacity to be perfectly normal, not have accumulated a lot of genetic or epigenetic changes and still make an animal. You have to get good cell lines. So with some of the cell lines that we tried, we did not get live mice. But since then, we and others have gone on to show that indeed, if you have good cell cultures and you're careful with your, cu with your culture conditions, then embryonic stem cells, after many passages, can still make live mice. And when we saw the first mice, were we excited? Yes, we were. Did we know that that was an important discovery? Yes, I think we did. And I do think that that discovery, along with everything else that occurred before it, I mean, we knew these cells were powerful in the mouse. We knew they could make lots of cell types. But the fact they could make a whole mouse did suggest then that if you transferred that to humans, you would have a powerful stem cell that could potentially make every cell type in the body. And I think that's really why that gets cited so much. People do still it, use that tetraploid approach when they're making new stem cells and testing them out. So when iPS cells are made, people want to use the tetraploid approach to show that they were really normal. So those kind of things still are still in the game. Yeah, technical achievement, also a major like intellectual, I think, leap. And, you know, listening to you, it's so inspiring as a scientist to hear you talk about what to me is like the equivalent of like the Impressionist era type salon where there's all these amazing innovators are all in the same room. They don't know what a big deal they are yet, but they're just doing they're just feeding off each other and synergizing. And, you know, everybody longs for that in life. But in science, I think because the fights are so hard fought for so little reward that that's really all that's left, right, <laughs> is this idea. So do you think that this was a singular, a singularity or something that happens once every 20 years? Or is there hope for the young scientists here that there's always this salon where there's the great innovators of their time and they're feeding off each other? Or do you think this happens only when you break through these bottlenecks of technical innovation? Well, no, I think it happens all the time in a larger and smaller context. So you know, I think the, the best thing about doing science is that moment of discovery when you see something that nobody else has seen before. And that can be something big. You know, it could be Shinya Yamanaka showing, looking in the dish and seeing that he's getting IPS cells. That's pretty amazing. could be us showing we've got little mice. But it can also be you just look down the microscope and you see for the first time, you know, a particular gene expression pattern. Or you see you know, a band on a gel that showed you something very important that you didn't know before. So, so it's little things and big things. And in terms of that sort of con that time when people come together and you get this sort of catalyst of, of events, it is true. And I, I think in anybody's career, if you look back, there's always periods where you say, that was just perhaps the golden period, because you had the right set of people, you know, in the labs, we had the right postdocs or students, the, the time was right, the technology was right. But, you know, there's, you never quite know that at the time. Sometimes you do, but really you don't know until afterwards that you look back and you say, well, that, was, that really was a transformational time. In my career, I would say the transformational times really were not when we, obviously, we didn't drive mouse embryonic stem cells, but my colleague Alex Joyner and myself and our labs were one of some of the first people to show that we could make targeted mutations in mouse embryonic stem cells, which allowed us to really explore genes in development and develop mouse models of human disease in new ways. And that was a huge explosion of interest worldwide. And it was great to be not the first people there, but absolutely the founders there. And that during that period here in Toronto, again, we had a, a whole set of people working in that area. And we really were sort of pushing back the technological and the uh, developmental, you know, the informational boundaries. So that was a really important time. And then, yes, the stem cell where we could get stem cells from every cell type of the, the embryo and watching the rest of the world then go on with human embryonic stem cells and being able to see that going through for regenerative medicine is really important. How, what's your perspective on the new techniques for discovery? So specifically in like translational control of development, there are a lot of techniques that are computationally driven these days. 
that are different from the, you know, I can do a knockout mouse or I can, you know, knock something in, knock something out. And it's very step-by-step experimental methods. What's your perspective on either how these things stand side by side or work independently in the current environment of experimentation and discovery? Yes, well, obviously, the, you know, the world changes the whole time. The technology has changed the whole time. It's very hard to keep up. But I think we are obviously entering into, a, into a, a period where the technologies of sort of single-cell genomics combined with live imaging, combined with, you know, so many different ways to explore biology in a comp- that require computational input, that require going to produce big data. We're all producing big data, even if we're doing it on little embryos. So, you know, my lab and others are doing single-cell RNA-seq on the early embryo. We're combining that with some of the technologies we know about. So we want to be able to use single-cell RNA-seq, but combine it with the experimental analysis we have. So I think that the best-case scenario is you bring in new technologies, but you build them on top of the, the knowledge that you have before. Other people, of course, don't do it that way. They take the, you know, the non-hypothesis-driven approach that says, let's look at everything, and we will be able to use you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and so on, to pull patterns out and come back at the hypothesis. And that's certainly, I think, becoming more and more a valid approach to go at things. It's not my personal approach, obviously. And probably at my stage in the career, probably not the direction I'm going to go. But I think the two can come together and will come together as we see this sort of data analysis being combined with experimental analysis. So just, you know, shifting gears a bit here, we've taken kind of a broad view and you've given us some really great insights into the whole process. But I don't want to pay short shrift to your more directed differentiation studies. You know, everyone would think you're very basic, just the first cell fate, but you're actually focused on the lung in a lot of your research. Is that right? Is that is there any particular motivation? I know you study cystic fibrosis. Is it just genetic disease within the lung? Can you give us some insight? What drives your interest there? So we've talked a lot about you know, my interest in the mouse embryo and basic development and where stem cells come from. But, you know, when we write grants over all those years, we were always saying, well, this is going to help us get to the human, get human stem cells or allow us to be able to differentiate and is the right cell types to treat disease or study disease. Well, when people started getting human stem cells and people started differentiating, I thought, well, we better put our money where our mouth is. We've been saying this all this time. So we do have part of the lab working on human embryonic stem cells and iPS cells. We chose to work on the lung for two reasons, I would say. One, in a practical sense, that I have many colleagues around here in Toronto working on differentiating other cell types. And uh, that's great. I don't want to be in competition with my colleagues. So the lung was a bit more of an open area, so that's number one. But perhaps more inspirationally, I am here at the Hospital for Sick Children. And so that, and I joined the Hospital for Sick Children over 10 years ago now, across the street from where I was before at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. But crossing the street and being exposed to the problems of children's health makes you think, well, is there something I can do that could have an impact there? And so we had started to work with the cystic fibrosis program here, which is a very large one. The gene for cystic fibrosis was cloned here at Sick Kids by Lachi Choi, along with Francis Collins. And that has been a big focus. So what we wanted to do was, working with that program, start to generate iPS cells from patients with different cystic fibrosis mutations, turn them into cell types that we could use to study the disease, also test some of the new drugs that are coming out and perhaps develop new drugs. So that was the push behind the lung, and that's what we're still pursuing as a major project. So we know that there are differences between mouse embryo and that paradigm versus the human stem cell paradigm. And and I've read that there are differences in the rapidity of the changes, these transitional states that occur as differentiation and determination is taking place, and they're different between the mouse and the human. In using the two different sides on the human stem cells and also the mouse embryo, are you figuring out more how the mouse embryo work can inform human disease therapies? I think what we're finding is that there are more differences than perhaps we might have thought, but I don't think we fully understand yet whether those differences are fundamental or whether they're, you know, 
sort of minor differences. So even if we think about blastocyst formation between the mouse and the human, we've now got a pretty good idea in the mouse of the genetic pathways and the timing and so on and so forth. I can make a pretty good model of how the embryo develops, although admittedly it's still still missing some steps. But we know the timing, we know when the genes come on, and we know how important they are. If you just look in the human embryo, then the timing when genes come on, the timing of when cells differentiate seems to be different. But the genes are still there. So I'm not sure that we really know yet how fundamentally different they are. But it does mean that we have to be careful that we do continue to study both side by side. Does that mean that the mouse is a waste of time? I hope not, because I've been spending my career on it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it doesn't, because it it is still the only system where we can do extensive experimental manipulation, and it is providing the oversight of the main pathways. So that's going to be the first step into, into the human. And even when you look at human pluripotent stem cells, there may be differences between the mouse and the human, but the fundamental pluripotent modules are essentially conserved between the two. So you can use it as a guidepost, but you have to be aware that it may not be exactly the same. Well, you talk about the, uh, you know, and I absolutely agree, the experimental model that's the most prevalent, the most profound and powerful is uh, the mouse. But we're in an era now where the genetic manipulation of human cells, germline potentially, is becoming a scary reality. And, you know, there's a level of kind of international, I think people are coming together. I'm sure you've been on some of these committees. I'm sure people have called you to talk about this. What's your, like, you've got to tell the world what to do. So can you give us a little sneak preview of what you're going to tell us to do in this kind of scary but amazingly exciting new era? Well, first of all, as a scientist, it's not my job to tell people what to do. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. Really, I believe that. As a scientist who's involved in this area, who works with embryos, works with gene editing, we do a lot of gene editing now in, in mouse embryos. All that nice stuff we did with gene targeting and embryonic stem cells, we don't do that anymore. We edit directly in the mouse zygote. In fact, just recently, we've developed a new technique of improving the efficiency of gene editing by editing in two-cell embryos. So we're actively making germline mutations in the mouse. So obviously, I have to be part of that discussion of thinking whether or when or how we should apply this to humans. But my role is really to help inform the scientific debate. And I think we need a much broader societal engagement And that is really what's going on in a number of different uh, environments right now to really consider what do we, where do we draw the line? Do we say human germline editing is just off the table altogether? I was part of the National Academies working group that produced a report a year ago now on human gene editing that looked at a broad look. Had we had a lot of discussions with many stakeholders and tried to come out with some overall general principles and recommendations. And if you look at that report, it basically says that you know, if you want to do somatic gene editing to treat disease, which is really moving very fast, that that's doable, that's a go, provided you have the normal controls for clinical trials and gene therapy. Gene editing in embryos to study development should also be allowed because you need to understand human versus mouse. But germline editing, that report suggested that it could be considered in the future, if safe, under certain circumstances for serious genetic diseases for which there was no other alternative. So that's about as far as I would go at this point. And I'm not personally sure that we know of the criteria or the case where we would be ready to move forward. But once you start going that pathway, then then there is this whole issue of then where do you draw the line between serious genetic disease and genetic enhancement? So how do you make sure that we don't go down sort of slippery slope. And I think that's why whatever happens, we need to have a a very strong engagement strategy that brings many people together and and ask people, you know, what do you think we should do? What is society ready to accept? And what kind of regulatory environment should we put in place? But if the outcome of that report was that considered that a complete ban on germline editing didn't seem to be appropriate, but, you know, it's early days. As I say, I think we have to have that debate. And in the end, it's public policy that's going to make the decision, not scientists. Scientists also need to be in a careful regulatory environment. 
we need a, a regulatory framework in which to work. We don't want to be going out there against what the society wants. So I think there has to be a two-way interaction there. Always a two-way interaction. This has been just a fabulous interview. At this point, we have a, a, an end of our interview that we like to do where we ask our guests one of three questions that are intended to stimulate conversation kind of about life as a real life as a scientist or to provide advice or encouragement and reinsurance to scientists. Dalen, you want to go ahead asking the question or? I think, you know, we didn't touch upon uh, this, Dr. Rossant, but, you know, you've received this L'Oreal Woman in Science Award. You're clearly an icon and an inspiration to young women in science. And I thought it was really nice. And I thought you emphasized it yourself when you talked about what brought you to science was you had a nice, strong female role model who really encouraged you and set the boundaries beyond the horizon. So I think you are that for a lot of people. So we'd like to know your career advice that you have for young female scientists in training. So I would say to young female scientists, there is absolutely no reason why you cannot succeed in this world. And you should really go ahead and pursue your dreams. That there are challenges ahead, but if you are dedicated to your science and if you're passionate about what you want to do, those challenges can be overcome. You need to seek out role models, mentors, and supporters. They can be female. They can also be male. Some of my best mentors and supporters were men who were gender blind. But you really have to seek those out and really take advantage of the networking that you can achieve because you will get support. Wonderful advice. It's great advice. Yeah. It's not always just going to be there waiting for you. You have to go searching oh, for it. Yeah. If you want yeah, it, to go mention, for it. <laughs> it's tough. I can speak for myself as a male in science, you know, and a lot of my peers, we're not the most socially adept people. So it can be that much more of a challenge to take a lot of courage to get out there and ask for help. So it's tough, but you're telling us, Dr. Rossant, that's a key. That's a critical element. I'll add one more thing then, on, which I also say, you know, network, networking, network, network, network. And that's for a young scientist, male or female. I told you, I sort of networked when I came to Canada. We never used to use that word. I think it's a new word. I didn't know I was networking. <laughs> you were um, just meeting people. Yeah. yeah, making an effort to meet people. And I'm shy. I'm an introvert. So it's not about being an extrovert, but it is about making those connections. And I always say to people, you know, if you go to a big meeting and you've got a poster, it's overwhelming. How do you find people you want to talk to? So, you know, it's okay. Try sending an email ahead of time. Just say, I really admire your work. And, you know, I have a poster. Would you like to come and see it? And not everybody will. But I think, you know, if you make those little, put little feelers, then people will respond. You know, it's hard in a big meeting, but you have to sort of be a little bit proactive. And I think women particularly, not all of them, tend to sit back. You can't afford to sit back. You have to step forward. And just, it's not that hard to do. And sometimes you'll get pushed back. That's okay. Just go on. Try somebody else. If that person doesn't want to come to your poster, okay. You don't want to talk to them. And make your supporter and may keep in touch in the future. So little steps. That's great. That's truth right there from Dr. Janet Rossant. Wonderful advice. It was just fabulous getting to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time. This has just been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. And to everyone out there, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. Don't forget to take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com and be sure to tune in for our next episode. And Dalen, that concludes episode 114 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for another great show. Thanks, Dr. Rassant. Thank you.